Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express. There's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I'm so grateful to live, work, play and broadcast live to you on Radio Karam from this very special part of the world. Welcome to the first ever show of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. Every week, I'll be joined by a new guest to talk about public places and spaces, interesting buildings, their people and their stories. We'll discuss issues important to the Kingston community, as well as those playing out at state and national level. As I embark upon this new adventure in radio, I'd love to read and share our listeners' thoughts as well. You can text the Karam Radio Studio on 0493 213 831 whilst we're on air or write to me via Instagram at Radio Architecture if you're catching up via podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. My name is Alana Rasbash. I'm a practicing architect and local Kingston resident. I'm passionate about public buildings and our civic life together. I'm really excited to introduce my first conversation partner, Dr. Damien Williams, a prize-winning historian, writer, producer and community organiser. He was born on Bunurong country, where he continues to live and work today. Dr Williams was educated at the University of Melbourne and graduated with a PhD in history in 2010. His interest in walkability and designing streets for people was heightened after being diagnosed a few years ago with a functional neurological disorder and type 1 narcolepsy. These days he runs a woodworking school in Chelsea and is president of Zero Kingston 2030. Welcome, Damien. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Alana. It's great to be here on your first show. <laughs> I feel um, like I should have brought some champagne to um, christen this as a champagne radio program, and um, I, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like a ship on a voyage. <laughs> yes, very much. Well, I have a first question that I want to ask all my guests, so you're first up. What's your earliest memory of a building or a place? Uh, it would be the home that we lived in when my family were in the Western District. We lived in Hamilton, which was a major um, centre there in, in the west of Victoria. And my dad was a, a manager with, with Telstra or Telecom Australia, as it was, um, when it was still a, a wholly owned government entity. And we drove around in a Commonwealth car with a red Z on the number plate, which I don't think they have anymore. And I had two sisters um, born there when, when we lived there in the 80s. And the house that I probably had my first memories of was, I think, the first house that mum and dad actually had a mortgage on. They'd, they'd lived in several rentals and we'd moved around a lot in that area before they settled on this particular place. And I guess it was a, either very early 20th century or, or late 19th century um, place with a bullnose veranda and um, I think it had a, a corrugated tin roof. Um, do you remember the colour? I do, actually, because my, my dad, who's um, someone who'd grown up on the farm and was very much used to doing everything himself and prided himself on that, um, undertook the task of stripping the bullnose veranda back and replacing the paint with the heritage stripes. So they were cream and, and red. And... I remember him saying to me, um, or saying to some people I was in the presence of, um, some time after that, that if you didn't know how to swear beforehand, you would certainly know how to swear after restoring a bullnose veranda. <laughs> what a project. Yeah. And that probably started your interest, perhaps, in so many different fields. Yeah, I mean, he, he was someone who had done quite well academically, um, but I think growing up in, in rural Victoria at the time when he and his twin brother, who was also, is very academically talented, 
they just didn't have the same sort of opportunities um, that certainly kids in the city would have had. And also, I think that they they both they both trained as an engineers, one in mechanical, the other in civil. And so, even though Dad ended up sort of going down that sort of managerial corporate route, both of them I think were um, happiest say under the under the hood of a car or you know pulling something apart and putting it back together again, whether it was a house or an engine or you know anything of that type. And when you I guess are um, Growing up in a family like that, there's a sort of, I would say, involuntary apprenticeship that you, you know, are dragged into by virtue of being the assistant. Um, yeah. And probably an attention and a care to where you are, to the land that you're on. Yeah, and, and that, that certainly came through um, from my mum. I mean, the Hamilton Art Gallery, for example, has actually got a really wonderful collection. I mean, in, in the 19th century, there were some directors of that gallery who were quite renowned antiquarians and so they were really into, um, you know, collecting stories and also objects from um, Indigenous people in that area. That's that's Gunditjmara country there. But it's it's not far from Jabarong country, which is sort of to the north around the Grampians and then um, there's other um, groups and clans which traditionally would, you know, congregate in areas such as um, Lake Bolak for... Where there's, a, where there's an eel festival today and it's a kind of confluence of various different nations. Um, and today, you know, you, you might be aware there's um, the World Heritage Site to the south of there at, at Budgebim, which is where the, um, uh, the Mount Eccles, as the Europeans called it, or, or Budgebim, the volcano erupted um, several thousand years ago. It cut off the creek. It formed this lake network and then... Um, mob there about it's been dated to at least 7,000 years ago started engineering the channels using the volcanic rocks and also uh, building stone houses and if you do the walk out there at Budgeman today where I used to take students when I was teaching at Monash um, you can see the the round shapes of the the bases of those houses and they're quite nifty because although they're small they're very very strong so when Europeans first came through on horseback. They could famously put a horse on top of the, the structure and it would still stay up. But what's interesting is where the prevailing winds come through from the southwest, and they're obviously quite cold in that part of the world, um, the entrances to the buildings all face the northeast. So you could still have a fire in there, you could still have you know animals and, and people and stuff congregating, but there was that level of protection. And I think, um, I mean, it's interesting going back to those sorts of places as an adult and and looking at them afresh. Um, Seeing the ancient wisdom, the ancient sustainability yeah, by yeah, default. Yeah, very, right? very much so. But I think also um, it, it repositions the history of vernacular housing in this country. It takes it back much, much further than perhaps just thinking about a sort of a zero point between, you know, um, uh, Indigenous history to, to a point and then European history beginning and provides us with a, a sense of continuity, I think, and maybe this would be something to we could look at in conversation later, but maybe a basis for a a um, a more a more vernacular type of architecture that's more strongly rooted in the country that we're that we're actually living on, um, in combination with some of those ideas that obviously come from elsewhere. Definitely. Just for our listeners, vernacular really means something that's representative and shows off where you are as being true to place. And there's a very interesting um, kind of belief theory position that true sustainability, more than just solar panels and all these tech things that we need to get right anyway, but more than that is feeling connected to where you are and having a connection to place so that you care about it and you love it. And I feel that you really love Kingston. You, you're incredibly passionate about this community. So I, I'm interested, how did Zero Kingston 2030 start up? Uh, it really started towards the end of 2019 when I had been in Ireland, actually. And I'd been travelling around the island of Ireland. Um, it was about August, September. I'd been in Galway on a day of... Um, it was one of the, the worldwide um, school strikes and there were um, a whole bunch of kids and, and local people there. And 
and we got talking to um, um, some of the people who'd assembled who were from the Labor movement and um, uh, they were just appalled, I think would be the best way to describe it, as uh, about the news reports that they'd seen coming out of um, northern New South Wales and south-east Queensland about the fires that were taking place. And I remember one um, turning to me and saying, isn't this the end of your winter? And I think it was the way that that person posed the question that made it suddenly seem a whole lot less familiar to me because there's a sense, I think, living in Australia today in which these uh, growing sorts of extreme events are kind of becoming the background static to our lives, particularly those of us who live in urban areas. And they had, I think, been receiving probably a greater volume and possibly better reports of what was happening than Australians were in their own media. And so on returning um, to Australia, I started to look into, you know, just what were the current sort of plans that we had locally for this sort of stuff. And it was clear that there were elements that needed updating. And so over that summer, um, began to sort of agitate a bit more with local councillors and others about, you know, what was the plan, what were you doing? And then basically just, you know, with the help of friends and, and others who we knew in the area, we, we started to um, gain more traction as that summer became much more of a, of, of a horror show, really. That was what shifted the politics. I think before Christmas that year, there was sort of a view that, oh, well, look, the settings we've got, we're pretty right. This is probably only concerning a niche group of people. And then if you recall the scenes on um, the beach at Mallacoota yes, and, and those summer. sorts of places, that, that was that summer. In hindsight also what makes it even more extraordinary is that it was really only about six or seven weeks after the Mallacoota incident that COVID arrived on our shores. And it's, it's um, interesting, I think would be one way to put it, to consider what would have happened if there had been overlap. I mean, in that sense, I think a national leader like Scott Morrison was a very lucky man um, in not having to try and deal with a situation like that. But, uh, you know, famously, he had been approached by emergency leaders from New South Wales um, three times, you know, over that preceding year saying, listen, Prime Minister, you know, there's a need to upgrade the aircraft fleet, we need to do this, we need to do that, and they were rebuffed every time. So... Once those stories of, of those people's experiences started to come out, I think there was a greater urgency locally. And, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an extraordinary effort, really, from a lot of people to, to petition council to, to do what it did. Interesting, though... What was the petition? Uh, it was to declare a climate emergency, yeah. yeah. So that had started um, at, at what was Moreland, now Meribeck Council, and then... Um, other councils in Melbourne started to do it. And when you looked at what had been done around the Bay, um, Bayside Council had done it in late 2019. And then I think what what also sort of spurred things along was that Dandenong was preparing to announce on the same night in January 2020. And so what I've come to appreciate is that councils are in some ways quite risk-averse, but at the same time, no one wants to be left behind. So... <laughs> you don't want to be seen to be the last ones to move, nor do you necessarily want to be seen to be the first ones to move. So when your neighbour starts to move and everybody else has started to move, then you join in. And that's indeed what happened. And with a bit of work afterwards during the consultation process, we got a really good plan put together. And to their credit, they have invested in, in staff to see this plan through. And so it includes um, a net zero target for council itself by 2025 and then for the community by 2030. Fantastic. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. And really leading the way in local governments. Yeah, they are now. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was part of the sell. You know, we, we said to them, look, you should be developing something that other communities, which are similar, can take off the shelf and say, we want to adopt this as the Kingston model. And how is your committee going now? How's your group going now after a very difficult few years? For yeah. any organisation, really. Yeah, look, I, I think the impression I get from talking to other people who do this kind of work is that is that COVID really stripped out people's personnel and their energy and 
anybody in a voluntary organisation of whatever shape or form that was able to do those two first years of the pandemic where, you know, sitting through those boring Zoom meetings and having those issues with disconnection and isolation and all those sorts of things. Um, plus, I'm sure, you know, for larger organisations, there were financial considerations around just not getting people through the gate anymore. We're all, we're all live questions. And, and I've, I've said to people several times, you know, at our meetings and other meetups and things that we shouldn't forget to give ourselves credit for just surviving, I think. Um, so uh, I, I try not to put too much pressure on myself for, you know, things that are late, delayed, you know. Um, it's areas. radical and important in many ways, right? You have to remember your own sustainability while fighting for oh, sustainability. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, I mean, we could return to that theme actually about, you know, whether sustainability is sustainable. But um, uh, th there's, there's um, an important need, as you say, to just make sure that you can carry on personally. But also, I think when you're involved with a committee of people that's still relatively small about how you work as a group. And, and, and look, honestly, I find that to be a challenge. But then again, when I talk to other groups, um, like, for example, our sister organisation in Bayside is, is BCAG, which is the Bayside Climate Crisis Action Group. They've been going for about a decade longer. They've probably got about 1,000 people on their email list, which is extraordinary. But it's really the same story. It's about half a dozen people on the committee that turn up, that do the work, everything from putting out the chairs to the PR to, you know, it might be similar to running this station. I think any any small organisation has a very similar story um, and that's just the way it goes. Absolutely. And you yeah. do a lot of work. You've been incredibly busy. You've been on a recent tour of Austin Maynard Architects Developments up north at Park Life and Terrace House. What are your first impressions of those projects? Oh, look, the first impression was the warmth. I mean, we, we went up to, in Park Life, we went up to the third or fourth floor where where the architect Ray Din has a, has a place there that he and his family live in. And he was kind enough to show us through. And it was a day a bit like today. It was, it was quite chilly and there was a bit of a breeze. And we walked into this apartment um, and it was just like t-shirt weather. It was, and it was such a lovely warmth too, not a, not a dry warmth like you get with say central heating. And uh, besides being taken by the um, book matched recycled timber floorboards that, that caught my eye. Uh, he said, he ra raced over to the back door and said, Oh, look, it's, um, the door still open. And it was, it was open about 15 centimeters and wow. the front door obviously had been open to let us through. So even in that moment where I assumed there was a breeze that had come through when he opened the front door, the warmth was still there. And then someone said to him, so what's the heating in here? And just said, there is none. It's a, it's a 9.1 star building. There's no heating and no cooling. And no bills. No bills, no fossil fuel emissions. Uh, they, they don't do that sort of waste of space in terms of um, individual laundries in each dwelling. So it's a, there's a communal laundry, same at Terrace House. And, and that, they stressed, was something that was done in consultation with those that had formed the community to want to be the residents. And, you know, it's just a very smart use of space and obviously the technology involved in um, the, the heat exchange, you know how these things work, I don't, but uh, the, the fact that it is possible to demonstrate these things um, now and then watch as other commercial developers that do involve real estate agents and others are now using the same sorts of things as selling points, which before I think they sort of just perhaps dismissed or looked down the nose at or thought it was a an extra that perhaps um, wouldn't necessarily meet the market's needs. You know? And it was very brave of First Breathe really to test the market with the yeah. Nightingale development model mm. and then many others joined and yeah. those developments are by Austin Maynard as also a developer and architect. Mm. That's why they had so much yellow. I can't imagine a commercial developer letting you have so much joyous colour everywhere, but... It's amazing. The, the, the aesthetic is amazing as well. Mm. In many ways, it's a big building. It's a tall building. 
Remind me how many stories was it from the visit? Uh, that's a good question. It, it looks around it, five in the... The Park Life building must be about... Oh, maybe that's higher. I think they were, might have been able to go a bit higher. They, they had to knock one story off, which became the sort of rooftop terrace. And that's pretty good too, sitting out there. You Stunning know, the, views. Yeah, in, just incredible views really. And and that was, they were saying actually, that was where Ray and his wife um, had their wedding. And so there's some lovely photos of, of all the guests, you know, seated on there. Those photos are on the Austin Maynard website as well. Right. Okay. And, all, and all the tech tech data and all the details about what what really makes that building function is so amazing. So I really encourage people to actually jump on and have a look at that. But that that moment that you described in the building, both doors are open, front and back, breathing through, breezing through. You've got air, but it's warm mm. and nobody's paying for it. No, and and it's it's winter time and it's as I was describing it was a it was a very gentle warmth. Um and I can only liken it to, <clears throat> excuse me, being in a building, for example, where the the, the sun, you know, has a, a nice aspect during the winter time. Um, the sort of place that you imagine a cat would want to crawl up, uh, crawl into a ball and just, you know, go to sleep. That was it was that kind of cosy warmth. I'm not a cat person, but I hear they're very good judges of character. Uh, I think so. Yeah, and an aspect, evidently. So. <laughs> Exactly right. It's and it's it's um part of that joy. It's not just the colour that they use, but also some of the shapes to break up the overall mass of the building. They they bring in these little pointed roof elements and they dissolve how big the form is. And that's I think what people are really worried about sometimes when they hear five story development is going up, but that building mass. But it they've added something that we call fine grain, which basically just means adding enough detail that you don't have this massive wall up against you. Yeah, very much so. And I I mean, I guess perhaps um, further to what we were talking about earlier about vernacular style, it's colour bond. And that to me evokes, you know, things like the the corrugated iron veranda. Um, Colour bond would have to be one of the most um, well-used products in, in building in Australia, um, ever, perhaps only rival by Hardy's. Um, and it's home to you, as yes. I'm sure it's home to many people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and also, I mean, you think about the sort of the legendary stories of, you know, Bradman, for example, practising his his art um, underneath a tank stand. It's a corrugated iron tank stand. So the, there's those sorts of um, functional elements which are brought into it too because there are actually a few of those corrugated iron water tanks on the roof in both places. I think in both places, definitely in Terrace House. And, you know, to me, um, that's, that's evocative um, of, of seeing those sorts of objects, you know, in other places at earlier times in my life and I'm sure for others as well. And it, you can have that. You can have those feelings of home in an apartment building, in a community where everyone knows each other, everyone knows their mm. neighbours mm. and they live near where they want to be. Yeah. So you had some members from council join you on that tour? I did, yes. Um, we really just sort of played um, matchmaker. Um, I was describing it yesterday. And so, yeah, the, the mayor, um, Hardy Saab, came along. Um, Councillor Chris Hill, the deputy, came too. And Councillor Steve Stakos, who's been mayor three times and has experience working in the housing association area, as, as does Chris. And um, so uh, we also had the... the General Manager for Planning um, and Development, Jonathan Goodman, coming along too. And it was a really good-sized group to go through with a couple of other people from um, from Zero Kingston as well and to be shown, you know, those places um, from people who live there. So Sophie Whitakers, who's the General Manager for AMA, she lives in Terrace House and was kind enough to show us through her apartment too and that had a very similar sort of warmth to it. Um it's very telling, isn't it, when people who worked on the project, and there's a number of architects who live inside these buildings, who worked on the project, who have run the project, choose to live in there. It's not just something they've fobbed off to the market. I don't know many other buildings. I have heard of a Mervac development from the 90s in right. South Yarra that mm-hmm. many of the employees bought up early on. But these developments, this is part of the, under the Nightingale model as well, and AMA, very, very popular 
amongst the people that work on it. So it's really a testament to the quality of life mm. you get mm. in such a place. Yeah, that, that's right. And look, I'm, I mean, I think the, I mean, the reason for, for doing that is obviously to just, you know, you, you get such a, a wonderful feel for a place as well as a look at it when you do a walkthrough, right? And I think um, that's a terrific way to experience, um, you know, built space and built environment. Um, and it it sort of, I think, um, offers an opportunity to um, for people to sort of anchor their understanding of what's possible locally in that experience that they've had elsewhere, which, given the distance we are from those sort of centres of development at the moment is not really achievable here at the moment. You can't do a walkthrough of a similar type building. But I think where this area will will start to change and where I hope I hope that the, the quality of building stock improves so that for residents here, you know, their long-term running costs, for example, um, will start to be decreased. Uh, I think it will be in in whoever does it, that one development that can at least achieve that same, you know, type of level or maybe even go to 10 stars, right? That would be, I think, achievable at the moment. Uh, and once people here can walk through and experience what I was describing to you earlier, then I think they'll go home, they'll do their sums and they'll look more readily at that type of thing and perhaps have less of that knee-jerk reaction against, oh, five stories, you know, that there's a heightest kind of approach to, you know, thinking about um, thinking about building character and, and that sort of thing at the moment. But I think that that might start to change and, and ideally will start to change pretty quickly. You raise an interesting question on neighbourhood character. What are some of the positions, what does your group think about neighbourhood character as a planning mechanism, as something council often gets worried about? Um, I mean, individually, there's there's a variation. Uh, some people would see um, that there is great value in you know being able to retain, uh, say, um, detached dwellings on suburban blocks in order to preserve vegetation cover, which obviously is a big concern at the moment because, like a lot of places, you know this area is seeing less and less cover. Um, and then I think there's others who would perhaps like to see a, a greater amount of focus on um, the, the public and the private in thinking about character. I mean, my assessment of the way that people discuss and think about character at the moment is it's very much on the private side of the fence as opposed to the public side. The public side is uh, taken, I think, as a given, as a space where um, you know, there's nature strips and there's places for cars. And I think that if we are to move to a more walkable community, then there's a need for us to think about the urban environment and character in a more total sense, in a more holistic sense. Um, and that's going to involve, you know, some um, new discussions, I think, about the the kind of strategic land use that we currently undertake and the sort of value that we put on land at the moment. You know, we, we have, um, we have a, a strange situation here where really, not, not just locally I should say, but really in Australia generally, um, land is spoken about as land and then we have other commodities. So maybe when land gets started to be seen as something with a value like we'd value a commodity, then maybe we can have a smarter discussion about when the way it's used. When you start caring about land and place and country, yep. like gold. Yeah, yep. that's right. And look, look after it and repair it and restore it mm. to a neighbourhood character that was before yeah. the colonised neighbourhood. Yeah. So it's... I believe often historians, right, grapple with this question, particularly in cities or civilizations with lots of layers of history, where you choose how far to go back, mm -hmm. right? And if you were really pushing the neighbourhood character question, wouldn't you repair critical ecosystems, which we're so lucky to have mm. beautiful wetlands and the Karim Karim Swamp? Yes, very much so. And, and also areas that have been 
built on on that existing swamp. I mean, you know, you've got one in four houses in Kingston that are built on the historic swamp, and and at the moment that's subject to an eighty centimetre flood overlay, which is the state government standard. But in other places like Moynshire in southwest of Victoria, where Port Ferry sits today, they've voluntarily um, undergone a new assessment that's using a one point two metre assessment. I believe that Queenscliff has been. Um, you know, considering a similar sort of move, that's in a similarly very low-lying area. And it wouldn't surprise me if Kingston looks at that as well. I mean, interestingly, to come back to the question of character, there are people who um, uh, would, would generally be opposed to greater amounts of development um, who are starting to use some of the flood arguments as a reason for trying to restrict supply in that sense of restricting heights. Um, I hesitate about going down that path though because I think that if you're going to make those sorts of claims you need good evidence to back it and although you know we're aware of the general threats and the the, the differing likelihoods of change under certain you know um, um, climate change scenarios, it is important to note that in local instances there is there is variation. I mean, for example, in this area here, we're talking about areas that are essentially flooding behind the sea in the sense that, you know, the sea level rise that we're talking about, the risk of it, is about water coming up the creeks and the tributaries and then flooding the areas behind. And then you've got the problem of the historic flow from the Dandenong and Yumemarin creeks, you know, going in the opposite direction towards the bay. So that, that raises situations that can't necessarily be mapped from other places onto here. And it just requires a bit of nuance and careful consideration because, you know, as you're aware, we are talking about um, nationally trillions of dollars worth of housing stock. We're talking about a situation where obviously private insurers and reinsurers are doing their calculations as well. And I'm not sure whether you and I discussed this earlier, but there are people here who last year were contacting council saying, I've received an assessment for my house insurance, it's $10,000. Another person saying it's $6,000. And these are standard size properties. And the the view that was expressed to me from people who know more about this stuff was that it's likely that their reinsurers have put red lines through this part of the, the world. And then it, it does become a live question about, well, in the event that there is an extreme weather event that um, you know, damages people's property or makes them homeless, who pays? At the moment, we have a situation where we assume that insurers are going to cover part of it, but when you've got a situation nationally where um, they're still profitable, right, they're still returning money to their shareholders, uh, but their costs are getting higher and they have their own in-house experts now. I mean, um, Follow AIG. the actuaries. That's you want right. To see where the risk sits. Well, follow uh, the actuaries. AIG employs climatologists and meteorologists now. You know they're they're providing expert advice to them. So, you know, it's a yeah. massive matter of equity, yeah. really. And I think about all my wonderful neighbours that I've had the pleasure of meeting in the almost a year now that I think about it that we've lived mm. in this area, mm. and I think about them being able to age in place and stay in their community or their home for reasons of insurance for reasons of is their city safe for them are their streets safe for them can they comfortably walk and that's really a question right if we can make a street a town a place safe for both elderly and children we're we're really covering people we're, we're covering oh place. very much so and and i think that's where you know we're also going a long way towards meeting those targets that we that we need to meet as far as reducing our emissions to zero as, as quickly as possible. But in doing so, to borrow a phrase from um, Kim Stanley Robinson that he uses in his um, newish novel, um, The Ministry of the Future, he talks about a good Anthropocene. And I think we're at a moment where we can plan for a good Anthropocene or we can do nothing and watch it roll out as a shit show. And when it comes to, you know, returning to that theme of, of equity, I think it's really beholden on us when we have a very good idea with a high level of confidence about what the likely effects of doing nothing are going to be 
on people who are uh, born today or who um, are too young to participate in the political process or don't have the capital to participate in, in the process as ratepayers, right, as, as own occupiers, um, then equity demands that an equal weight be given to their needs. So, for instance, you know, um, if you have a, a child who's in prep this year, might be four or five years old, they'll be 31 or 32 years old in 2050. And that's probably an age at which we can say with some confidence they're probably going to be looking for a place to start a family if they want to do that. Now, I think there's a question, Mark, that, there's a question that we should be asking ourselves, which is that if, if we know with the level of confidence that their chances of being able to find shelter here are going to be harder or their ability to walk the streets is going to be more difficult because of extreme weather or that their parents will be elderly by that time will also be finding it more difficult, then if the choices we're making now are likely to result in those things, we should probably be reconsidering the choices we're making now. That's why I'm really interested in the priorities of Zero Kingston 2030. Mm. Mm. When I first learned th about them, in many ways I was a bit surprised because okay. it's not many environmental groups mm. identify urban forestry as a main strategy, identify the importance of housing mm -hmm. as a main strategy, mm. identify the walking city is going to be these big ideas. And architecture is very much about ideas, so I'm really loving uh, this, this thread that it underpins everything else we're going to do because if we can get those three things right, correct me if I've misunderstood, misunderstood your strategies, but if we can get those three things right, we will have a sustainable Kingston that will be adapted and adaptive for whatever's to come. Very much so. No, that, that's, that's hitting the nail right on the head. I mean, it's, I think it's an, it's an opportunity for us to be able to plan in a way that actually makes the community healthier um, and wealthier by saving money from, from long-term household running costs and that also can at the same time overcome some of those persistent problems that we have throughout the community to do with social isolation, for example. I mean, I've, I've not driven a car here for um, about the past seven years. And truth be told, it's, um, it's pretty shit. When you, don't, when you don't drive a car in a place that's very much car-centric and you're this far from town, there are times when, you know, you have that kind of, you know, FML moment. But the other flip side to that is that in walking around everywhere, I've made more friends locally just from bumping into people. And, and this is one of the things that, of course, urbanists have been saying for years, that, you know, one of the things that makes good cities function is the fact that you can bump into one another and that, that cities bring together people of diverse backgrounds and skills and, and that's where you see innovation because, you know, people have discussions like this and, and we come to new conclusions about things and new ideas and business opportunities and friendships start to emerge. So that's where, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful enough to think that something better can come from this, even with the knowledge that at least for you know, our generation and likely for the next, that things are going to get pretty tough. So um, I think we can plan to mitigate against those likelihoods, even though, you know, none of us know 100% for certain what the future is going to hold. But um, we can say that based on the best available evidence that we can be planning for this sort of scenario and, and trying to create something better out of it. And um, without labouring the point too much, I mean, that's why I sort of prefer these days to use that phrase, planning for good Anthropocene, rather than something like responding to climate change, because it, I think it's got to the point where that phrase now is sort of so empty or people kind of roll their eyes at it and it becomes part of that, again, that background static. Where's that, the tangible hope in that as right. well? Right, yeah, you know? yeah. Because... Yeah. I think my neighbours and I can all visualise a greener street mm. with beautiful leafy canopies when it's too hot to walk the dog yeah. along the beach, mm. which is where I meet up with everyone and chat yeah. and say hi. So necessary, those interactions of community mm. because we are inextricably interconnected. 
we can't be separated from each other right. for that good future Anthropocene. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you imagine Kingston if, if you closed your eyes and thought about the, the ideal that council adopts, the projects, the policies, the hopes? How do, how do you see the main street? Probably Nepine Highway, I guess, is our main, <laughs> is our main street. Well, I, I really love what they've done in places like Lancaster, California, where they had a very similar five-lane, what would you call it, four-and-a-half, five-lane thoroughfare going through the middle of town there. And a few years ago, they decided to talk to the community about doing something new. And um, and they did that in a deliberative process and they spoke to some designers. And to their credit, they chose really the most daring design. And the most daring design was to put what they call a Ramblas, sort of Barcelona-style Ramblas, um, down the middle, which is treed. They've moved most of the parking. That's a big promenade. Big, Beautiful. Big open yeah. promenade with lots of people can yep. just walk through and stalls mm-hmm. and carts and shop vendors and skateboarders. I think they've let the skateboarders stay. Yeah, I, I think they probably have. For all the skaters. It's, it's been, they've reduced the speed limit to, I'm not quite sure the conversion because it's American, but I think it might be 15 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour. Anyway, it's a, it's a speed that's low enough for cyclists to use it safely without the need for protected lanes. And they reduced the, the traffic to one lane each way. So that means that there's a slowing, you know, when you narrow the lanes, there's a slowing effect on the traffic. And each Thursday, instead of having the parking, there's a weekly market. And so the Rumblas is used for stallholders. Um, now, that is entirely possible here. And um, to my surprise and also joy, I saw the other week that there's a proposal to do just that at the Frankston end of Nepean Highway. So there's a proposal to do it, I think, between where Davies Hotel is and and Oliver's Hill, along that bit that kind of um, bends around as you head towards the peninsula. Now, if, if they're going to kick it off, all well and good. It's the same road. We just continue the project until it moves up to Mordialic Creek and then hopefully beyond. Exactly. Yeah. They have their case study. Yeah. And Kingston actually has an open application at the moment for parklets. So hospitality businesses can, yeah, can get I, on board. I have, look, I have mixed feelings about parklets. Me too. Why do you have mixed feelings about parklets? I'm concerned about the privatisation of public space. So, yeah. 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 So I, I support the idea of parklets generally. I think there's so many businesses around where I live that would really benefit from mm. all that space, especially in our ongoing pandemic Outdoor dining is great options for people and it's good for business, it's good for people. It's good for the activation of the street. But I don't want to see the privatisation of beaches like they have all across most of the Mediterranean in mm. Europe happening here. Mm. So when I see that in Elwood um, cropping up on the beach, that makes me a bit nervous. What, for like beachside bars or something? Yeah, like there's that? beachside kiosks, beachside mm. the, and the restaurants and bars take up sand space and put up their um, – and St Kilda too, Elwood and St Kilda have it right. – with marquees and umbrellas and sun chairs and lounges, but you have to have, buy a drink to sit at the table. So I wouldn't want to see that on, on the shore, but – No. No, it, it's something that's actually been underpinned by some research at UNSW. They were looking at this issue of transforming car parking and in this particular project, the team there decided to um, – essentially sit some offices or bureaucrats of some kind on the on the car park and see what people's responses to it were. And to their surprise, rather than – I don't know what the hypothesis was, but they it was something along the lines that the researchers um, hypothesised that people would respond well to this idea of them moving people out of – buildings in other words that could be repurposed and then out into the open essentially just working outside and it was not liked and for exactly the reason that you talk about it was perceived as being the privatization of space but then when they did they follow up and instead converted it just to green open space that anybody could use like for example the the pop-up outside the sun theater in Yarraville it was um, much more widely um, accepted and, I mean, to return to that thing we talked about earlier about, you know, strategic land use, when you look at the parklets in town, for example, after closing time, they're just strewn with leaves. No one uses them because they're perceived as private space. 
Um, People don't feel invited that's to it. come there. Yeah, they put Where, a picket fence around it. And, yeah. If it was public space, you could get your coffee takeaway and sit there. That's it. You could get your meal takeaway and sit there and still use it. Yeah. Around the clock, 24 hours. Yeah. But it's an interesting conversation, interesting question about what is it that we do give space to in a city and how much space we give to one car, usually occupied by one person, versus me and 20 of my friends in the parklet. Well, I mean... In that bit of public, yeah, public green. M- maybe there is. M- maybe it is time to offer a more critical response to parklets because, I mean, it occurs to me that in one sense they could be interpreted as uh, ring-fencing space for cars. It's not actually about ring-fencing space for people. I think if we were serious about streets for people, then we wouldn't kind of go halfway like City of Melbourne's been having trouble with with some of its one-way streets, as I'm sure you're aware, where they've been designated as shared spaces, but the drivers don't recognise people walking down them. They still see it as their space. Um, and that's going to come down to also the, the, the charge that we put on, on that kind of land use as well. The, the idea that one can park the most polluting the most dangerous, the most expensive and the most inefficient form of urban transport on a finite piece of land for free is nuts. You know, if you, if you had a Martian who landed here and you tried to explain that to them and then you explained that the, the really efficient piece of transport that runs up and down the rail costs you money, they'd look at you like you had three heads and say, I might just go back to where I came from, thanks. This doesn't make any sense. You park the thing that sits still for 97% of the time and that depreciates in value 30% every year and you do that for free. And you could only do that for part of your life. Yeah. Over 18, if you can afford to own the car in this economy. That's right, yeah. Or yes. your parents' car if you can beg to borrow it and not scratch it up or for as long as you're able to drive which for many people comes earlier than they expected. Or if you don't choose to. If you don't choose to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you should be able to stay in your community and stay connected. Mm. Yeah. And look, and that's where I think in that process of making a lot of these familiar things unfamiliar, um, that's where I, I get a lot of consolation from history because, you know, historically uh, you can find good evidence even just in photographs of this area where you can see that streets were for people. And really until that period of the 1960s when a car became affordable for um, people on a working-class wage, the the price dropped to the point where uh, it was equivalent to about a quarter of the yearly income of a a working male in Australia. Um, That's when car ownership um, becomes normalised and then we start to design, or we... um, planning authorities design streets around those cars. Now, that's in, in the history of cities, that's a relatively short space of time. But, of course, in living memory for people that perhaps born at that time, it's completely normal. So there's a, there's a job to do in sort of making the familiar unfamiliar, but I think that's possible. We've done it before with things like smoking, the introduction of seatbelts, um, and a range of other things that we sort of we take as being normal. So I think it's possible here too. And those examples you brought are actually brought in for the benefit, for the well-being of the public, yeah. for the health of the public, mm. which a cleaner, fresher, greener, safer, more walkable city arguably is a massive pe- public health issue. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, perhaps someone would say that the the major difference with, with cars is that um, – Car culture successfully sells the idea of individual freedom and that's really what you're buying with that. And I think it's going to be sort of turning the notion of freedom around and, um, you know, considering Sol Griffith's work that we've got here in front of us, it's going to be freedom from the, from the increasing costs that will come from running those things, whether they are electric or whether they are internal combustion and a way of you know talking about electric vehicles in particular as being um public or you know in the dutch style car shares car shares exactly right yep so more of that sharing economy or even um 
you know, those wonderful um, cargo bikes, which, um, you know, are probably the most efficient form of urban transport and an entirely possible option in an area that, I mean, where's the nearest mountain? Oliver's Hill, if you can right. count it. <laughs> there you go. So it's a very flat, it's a very bikeable place. Yep. Very, very yep. bikeable. Yeah. We're yep. lucky to have walking trails, but in a way that they don't necessarily connect. Yeah. When you said there was freedom, mm. it's really interesting. It's a powerful imagery. I think for most people, in many ways, it can really galvanise a, a movement, a community. When you said that word, in my mind, instantly I thought of a forest. Mm. I don't think of a car as my freedom. I joke that my bike is my freedom machine. Right. But I thought of a forest. I thought of going for a hike, being in nature, having the time to immerse myself in green space. And that you know, I work in the city, I studied in the city. And in those university years, when we got a moment for a break, we would go outside, lie down on the green lawn of the state library, look up, have the sun on us, especially in the middle of winter. And it was connecting to that green space that made us feel that we were in, on country, that we were part of something bigger than just a building or a university. It gave us, it gave us that, yeah, so it's very um, interesting bit of imagery. I think people don't consider that something they think frees them may actually entrap them. True. I mean, I've heard that part of the appeal of manicured lawns is that it, it taps into our um, ancestral um, practice of domesticating animals and that it's the presence of grazing animals that, that gives us comfort because, of course, there's a source of protein um, for us, you know, um, from that period. Um, we haven't changed much, have we? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> when I think about my um, late... Um, paternal grandfather who was a sometime farmer um, and kept an incredibly neat lawn. I do sometimes wonder whether that, that theory perhaps holds true, although he, he didn't raise animals, he, he, um, he grew crops. Um, there is something very neat about places that you see in, in rural communities for, for whatever reason. Um, but to return to the, the theme about trees and an open space, there's there's often an assumption made about people that live in ordinary communities, and this historically is an ordinary community. You know, um, uh, I've I've myself heard, you know, advisors to some very senior government ministers, for example, refer um, disparagingly to to places like this, this far from the CBD, as being places of quote low information people. And it betrays a kind of mindset, I think, that plays into the notion that working class people, ordinary people, don't appreciate greenery. You know, it assumes that what they want is a car park. Deeply unjust statement. It is. And it's, it's evident, I think, or, or I should say, sorry, that the assumption is reinforced whenever these sorts of issues get raised in public forums or these days usually on social media. And if you... Um, you know, if you want to really um, rile people up, it will be to make a suggestion to remove car parking, right? Because like we've talked about, people associate that with freedom. And also um, a driver has a perception that is very narrow, very limited to them wanting to get that spot by the front door. And if they don't get the spot by the front door, then they reach the conclusion that there's a shortage of car parks. There's not a shortage of car parks. There was just a high demand at the time you wanted to get to the front door. Right. And so the way that it begins to sort of become a self-perpetuating um, conclusion in communities like this is because the, the response reinforces the assumption and the assumption is often what political actors carry into office. But what changes that is when you sit down with people and start to have a conversation with them that begins with a question such as, how do you feel when you walk down the street? And I've done this with people around here and they will tell you when they're given that opportunity to say, I feel agitated, I feel stressed, I feel like I'm on alert all the time, I don't want to stay here, you know, it gets treated like a drive through therefore you behave like a drive through Um... And then when you show them a picture, say, of St Kilda Boulevard or, you know, an area of the gardens, 
how do you feel when you're in an environment like this? Oh, I feel calm. I want to bring my friends here, you know. So that's where perhaps a more deliberative engagement on these sorts of questions can be very useful. But that, that threatens people that come through um, into office and into political positions with a range of assumptions like we just discussed. So there's, the, the, yeah. You've recently, you've recently been providing feedback on the 20-minute city, the 20-minute walkable city plan for Kingston. And really what that means is you can work, you can live, you can play, you can do, meet all your basic needs in a 20-minute round trip by foot. How incredible would that be for it to come to fruition here? Oh, it'd be great. I mean, um, uh, I mean to clarify, I, I wasn't actually, I wasn't actually providing feedback on that. Is it the walking and walking and cycling strategy um, you're talking about? But I did sort of talk to it in that submission on housing, and that that might be the one you're referring to. Um, I agree. I think it would be great. I mean, in some ways, I think it's unfortunate that Twenty Minute City has become pejorative because of the criticisms and backlash that it's been getting famously from places like Oxford where they sort of refer to it as a 15-minute city and then it's become an issue in places like Alberta, Canada, which has just had recent provincial elections. Um, they've returned a very conservative Premier there who's who's very, um, um, very much opposed to these sorts of interventions and is, is a drill-baby-drill drill kind of um, politician. To clarify, the majority of this intervention is really to let people walk places comfortably and have mixed-use development. And that threatens people who have a, a conspiratorial view that's been, that's been massaged and exacerbated by their experience of the COVID lockdowns. So, look, personally, I would tend to avoid the use of the term 20-minute city, although the philosophy, I think, of walkability is what I prefer. I mean, look... Really, if I was pushed, I think the, the idea that I really love the most is the concept of designing streets for people. Um, I think that borrows more from perhaps the Dutch example. Um, you know, that didn't come about naturally. There's people here you can mention that too and they'll say, oh, but they're a different culture over there. No, they're not. They just made different planning choices. Everything's and a decision. Everything's, everything's about a decision. priorities. Yep. And it also took activism because, you know, in the 70s when they had those terrible cases of kids being hit by cars on the road... It galvanised the political movement. They did the car-free Sundays. You know, it rolled on. There was also the oil crisis too, which I guess similar to our experience pushed energy prices right up. But their response to it in designing streets for people is is based around the idea that um, you still have car traffic and car transport. It's just that cars are treated as guests. And I think for me that's the sort of philosophy I'd like to roll with here where, yes, there's a need because, you know, particularly when you think about it from an all-abilities perspective. There's people who just physically can't get out by foot or by bike or wheelchairs. They need a car, and that's fine. But it's just that we start treat them, treating them as guests and put people of all ages and abilities first, and then I think we'll have a, a really lovely place to live. Absolutely. So what gives you hope for the future? Uh, well, when I... When I see places like Park Life, see what is being done with the built environment there, and reading um, Sol Griffith's work, I think he he clearly sets out how you can achieve a, a zero emissions um, future for Australia with technology that's already here. And th I think the other thing that that gives me a sense of hope is. Um, the prospect of us being able to to jettison some of the the elements of our economics and our political systems that have got us to this point in time, um, it's not necessarily going to take much. I think there's a great amount of fear um, amongst some people about the prospect of change, but I think we can do that without a, a great deal of disruption and and come up with something that. Um, will be much better than doing nothing at all. It's imagining our future with the tools we already have, and the, th the simple things we already know, really. Very much so, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Damien. It's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy.